Well, hello, everybody. Nice to see you guys. My name is Rafe Chenry. I'm the pastor at Park South Loop, and it's always good to get to come over here and join you guys at Bridgeport. Um, two things to, before I dig into the Word today. Number one is if you have a Bible, open them up to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. Today we're finishing our series in Judges. We'll be looking at Judges chapter 19 to 21. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. I'm sure someone can drop that off for you. Judges 19, page 218 in your house Bibles. Uh, the second uh, thing I want to just say before we get started is this. The chapters we're about to study are the most horrific three chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, this is as bad as it gets except for the crucifixion. Uh, because of that, I need your permission this morning to go to a few places that oftentimes we don't go when we talk about Scripture, when we talk about the church. These three chapters are in here on purpose, uh, and they, we need to talk about things as a church. But I would also just let you know, if you have children in the room right now, uh, I will do my best uh, to um, navigate this conversation wisely. I would recommend uh, that you drop your children off in our Phenomenal Loop ministry. Uh, this text brings to light some conversations that are just going to be tough. Uh, and so please give me that grace to go there today. And I wanted to give you that warning before. If you're not sure, I'd recommend dropping off of the loop. With that, let me pray for our time. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. <clears throat> I thank you for a chance to dig into your word this morning. God, I, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you and to think about you and to worship you and to move towards you in all, to, to worship and know you in a way that we didn't or weren't able to before we came in this room. God, move us into a new place of faith. Stretch us. We desire to be stretched. We don't want to be the same person. And so now we sit underneath the authority of your word. Put aside anything I would say or my voice and make Christ be exalted and your word come forward with clarity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I love living in Chicago. Uh, Chicago provides us with a lot of benefits. I love that I have three kids and I can take them to new parks across the city all the time. I just discovered Washington Park down in Hyde Park and the best pool in the city. It's a secret, but now I've shared it with you, so if you've got kids, Washington Park's a good one. They got a big water slide. I love that we can discover new things about Chicago all the time. Sometimes I feel like I can go to a new restaurant every day. And uh, I'll never run out because new restaurants continue to open every day. Chicago does lack one thing, and I hate to break it to us, but if you're new to Chicago and you got a rosy uh, colored glasses on right now, I'm going to break one bad thing about Chicago. There's a lot of light in Chicago. And because of that, if you like nature, if you like looking at a starry night sky, it's tough to see stars here in Chicago. On a good day, sometimes you look up and you can see a handful of them, six or seven. My four-year-old daughter thinks that's what a starry night sky looks like. It's six or seven stars out in the sky because that's all she knows. But over the summer, we were at Lake of the Ozarks on a vacation with the family. And I just love being out on the lake in the darkness and seeing the Milky Way shine. Seeing the, just the darkness. And there's no ambient light from the city. There's no street lights coming in. It's just darkness. And there in the pitch darkness, you could see the brightness of the galaxy shining forth. Light always shines brightest against a black backdrop. As we close this series today, we're looking at the final three chapters. And if there's any way to describe the final three chapters of the book of Judges, it's that it paints a black, black, black backdrop. 
It's as dark as it gets. And the reason for that is because it's going to point us towards the light. Within these chapters, as we accurately assess and accurately understand the people of God in all the atrocious sin that they brought into the mission of the people of God, what we are going to find is that we need light and we cannot stay in the darkness. And by God's grace, we find that in Jesus Christ. That's been the story of the book of Judges from day one when we started studying this. Judges. Over and over again, we find this story, and we're bringing it to a close today, but Judges has been the story of God's people cycling out of control. Literally, every time they were supposed to be given a mission to to be a light to the nations, to let all the nations see the beauty and the goodness and the love and the favor of the God that is known as Yahweh, that was their mission, but they continued to fail. They continue to put their eyes on lesser things. They fell into sin time and time again. And yet every time they fell into sin, God would raise up a leader and he'd say, I haven't forgotten you, Israel. Even in your sin, even in your debauchery, even in the the failings to live out the mission, I still love you. My covenant still stands. I'll still pursue you. And that's the God we love and serve. Every week in Judges, we pointed to ourselves and said, their stories, our story. We are a city set apart. We are a city on a hill. We have been given the same mission. In fact, the mission's been elevated since Jesus rose from the grave and filled us with his spirit. And yet, time and time again, we settle for lesser things. We trust in idols. We cling on to money and career and the things of this life that cannot satisfy or fulfill us, can never give meaning into our life, and we pretend like they're our gods. By God's grace, we keep looking to the cross and find restoration. Judges has been our story. And these last three chapters, as we descend into the abyss of Scripture, we are framed by a verse. The author bookends. He starts and then he ends with one very clear verse. Let me read it to you in its entirety at the end of the book, last verse of the book of Judges. He says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's almost like the author is framing this entire story to say, how'd we get here? How'd it get so bad? How how is this possible, not just in the world, but within God's kingdom? Within God's people? Here's why. Frame it, bookend, the author does this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What I want to do right now is I want to look through this story together, and we're going to go quickly through it. Uh, I would encourage you to look in more detail. I'm, it's a long story. It would take more time than I have to go through every detail of this story, but I want to highlight some of the pinpoints that make this story what it is. Judges chapter 19, verse 1, in those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, pause there. Here's a man of God. A man with the same mission you and I have, to be in such tune with God, such beauty with God, such human flourishing with God, that the nations see the beauty of God through his life. And we find out he's taken a concubine. Now let's just be really clear. What is a concubine? Essentially, it was a second-class wife who was essentially used for sex and childbearing in those days. Really, it was a, a sex slave is what it was. It was a man who had completely gone against God's design for marriage. Marriage has always been between one man and one woman for life. But here is a man, a people of God, who takes a concubine on for himself, blending in with the culture around him. Now, what's scary about this is that the author almost doesn't even take note of it. It's just like, duh, he took a concubine. The culture has so degenerated 
among the people of God that taking a concubine was not a highlight of the story. How scary is that for us as a people of God? That sexual sin could be so prevalent, so normalized, so part of our life, that it's really just a duh, like yeah, it's, it is what it is, this is what we do. There's bigger fish to fry, isn't there? That's how the author talks about this concubine. And for us, it's, a, it's an awkward moment for us to think about the sexual sin that takes place within the church. But the story goes on, and what happens is this concubine runs away from her controller, from her master. I wouldn't call him her husband. It was really her owner. And she runs away, and it says that she was unfaithful. Now, we don't know if that meant she had some kind of an affair or if her unfaithfulness was that she just ran away from her owner. I give her credit for running away from her owner. But in that day and age, that was seen as being unfaithful. But she runs to her father's house. The owner of this woman waits four months and then pursues the concubine, goes to the father's house. There's this awkward conversation that the woman's dad has with the woman's owner about bringing that woman back into sexual slavery with this man. Here are two men of God who are designed, created to be this woman's protector to care for her, to shepherd her, to guard her, to create space for her who are literally abusing her. The woman God designed her to be. And they are the ones who are literally abusing her, who have forgotten her rights as a woman of God. Well, the Levite takes this woman and he, her concubine and he starts heading home with her once again. The father just lets her go. He could care less. They say, you know what, we need to find a place to stay. The journey's long. Let's not stay in a town that's full of the people that aren't of God. It would be safer if we stayed in a town where the people of God were. So they decide to stay in a town called Gibeah. That was in the tribe of Benjamin. The people of Israel lived there. This should be a safe place. And as they're staying in the town square, there was nowhere to stay. No one took them in. An old man takes them into their home, says, hey, you know what, it's not safe out here in the town square. Stay at my house. Judges chapter 19, verse 22 reads this way. As they're staying in that man's house in Gibeah, verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry that night, that probably means as they were drinking, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we might know him. That means that we might molest him. Now, if you're an astute Bible reader at this point, you will recognize that this is a story that's now on repeat. This actual moment has occurred one time before in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, where people were staying and the men of the town started beating on the door, saying, send the men out of your house so we might know them. Here's the difference. Sodom and Gomorrah was not the people of God. This is now the people of God doing the exact same behavior. This is where it should start just shaking us somewhere really near our most vulnerable places, the people of God behaving this way. Verse 23 through 26 describes what happens next. The man, the master of the house, the old man who had taken the men, went out to them, to the the angry mob, and said, No, my brothers, don't act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here's my solution. Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. 
So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now, I warned you this passage was bad, and it's going to get worse. But we have to pause here. This is an assault by... This is horrific. This is an assault by a group of men on an innocent woman. They abuse her all night until she dies. God's people are nowhere to be seen. The two men that are supposed to be protecting her literally have thrown her to the wolves themselves in order to protect themselves. Here's the scariest part of the whole story. You ready for this? Nowhere in chapter 19 does she have a voice. She's a woman with no name and with no voice. This poor woman is surrounded by men who are abusing her and she's silenced. Now, I'm a father to three little girls. And just to be honest with you, there are nights when I lay in bed, not being able to fall asleep at night, clenching my teeth, fearing this. And this moment for us should shake us that God's people would allow this type of abuse to come in. According to the Center for Disease Control, one in five women in our country will be the victims of sexual assault in their life. One in five. I was speaking to a woman in our church this morning talking about that statistics with her. She said, you know what, Rafe? That's too low. It's higher than that. It is higher. And my guess is if you're a woman in this room right now, you would agree with that as well based on the women that I've spoken to recently. As followers of Christ, we need to address this within the church and we need to create an honest, safe, meaningful, Christ-saturated place to have an open conversation about the sins of the world and the sins of the church. The church should be a city on a hill. The scary part for us to relate to this story is that very recently, especially in the last few years, what's coming to light is the book of Judges is not just back then, it's today. It's God's people that continue to permeate this story of silence and voicelessness for women. Just last week, what did we see? Another 300 grown-ups who have been silenced because they were victims of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church when they were children, and when they tried to come forward, no one would listen to them, and they were silenced. Within the church. Again, in the last few months, what have we seen? Well-known, prominent pastors who have respect across all Protestant Christianity finding out that they have a long history of sexual abuse towards women. And what's scary is when the women had come out, when they tried to say something, when they got the courage up to actually have a voice, they were told, stop talking. Or they were given a half-hearted investigation into the situation. This problem, this is the church, and judges is now. This situation is not the world's problem, this is the church's problem. Women, silence. To my sisters in Christ, there's so much more to this story. I wish I had five sermons to sit here and Lord willing, we'll create space to do that soon. But to my sisters in Christ, I need to pause here. I need to speak to you. I need to tell you two things. Number one, you are made in the image of God and that means you have dignity, you have worth, you have respect and no matter what someone does to you, they cannot take that away from you. 
It might feel like it has been stripped from you. It might feel like your voice has been taken from you, but they cannot take what has been stamped on you by the creator of the universe. Your value is not what someone has done to you. Your value is in your creator who knows you, loves you, and promises to walk through this with you. You cannot take someone's dignity from them. You have worth. And in this church, we want to make sure you know that worth. Number two. I want to apologize on behalf of the leadership of the church. First of all, I want to apologize for this. One, I had no idea it was this big of a problem. That is me living in la-la land. I, I didn't have my eyes open until I started studying the text and looking at actual research and realizing that a good chunk of the women in this room, this rings a very deep chord with you. I also want to apologize that we have not historically confronted this head on that we've skirted the conversation. What is that? Why does the church skirt the most important conversations? This is real life. These are real lives, these are real women, and men as well that get stuck in this as well. And yet the church is afraid to talk about it, and as a pastor, I can tell you why the fear is there. Because I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to counsel to the degree that women you need counseling. I don't know how to put resources around it, but I know this, I wanna learn how. Here in this church, we have an incredible network of pastors, of deacons, and a network of professional counselors and psychologists, as well as members and partners of the church who are filled by the Holy Spirit that are designed by God to come around and provide healing and justice. Healing and justice. I want to just let you know, in this moment right now, if you are a woman who you have been living in the silence of the concubine of chapter 19 and you have not told your story, and you have faced the consequences internally with your own battle, I want you to know we want to be a place, we want to be the safest place, God's church ought to be the safest place to speak and to find full comfort and a healing process. We want to learn along with you, and we have a great team that can come alongside you. This sake of time, I'm going to, but it is not unlike the story you and I live in. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip fairly quickly through chapters 20 and 21, but let me summarize it for you this way. All of Israel gets in an uproar of what's occurred. Um, What happens after the Levite takes his concubine is quite disturbing, actually. Judges chapter 19, verse 29, let me read it to you. He, when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, actually what's interesting is we're not certain if the concubine was actually dead at this point. But taking his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. This is just disgusting and disturbing. But what happens is, is all of Israel gathers together. They get a limb. And they come to Mizpah and they decide what to do. They said, here's what we're going to do. What happened is atrocious. We've got to go to war. Let's kill the tribe of Benjamin. It was the Benjamite city that did this. Let's go to war with Benjamin. And so the 11 tribes of Israel, excluding Benjamin go to war against Benjamin. It's a three-day war. And eventually, the Benjamites are wiped out. But Israel is so full of bitterness, so full of rage, that they then continue to go to war against the Benjamites. They not only kill all the military men, but then they go back into the city and kill all the men and women as well. They annihilate an entire tribe of Israel. All that remains of the Benjamites is a few hundred men who have escaped to a mountain. And then Israel stuck in this conundrum. They sit there and they go, well, this is awkward. We've just killed an entire tribe of Israel. 
but we're supposed to be the people of God, 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't it true that sin always leads to more sin? Isn't it true that if you don't stop to ask God what to do with the feelings that you're feeling in your heart, in their heart they were feeling rage and bitterness, and they, they had a plan of what to do. Here's what we're going to do with that rage and bitterness. Don't submit it to God. Let's just go to war. Most of us, that's our same mentality. What do I do? I go to war. I go to war with my words. I go to war with my actions. As a nation, we go to war when we feel bitterness and rage. But we never stop to ask God, God, filter this for me. These are my emotions. My emotions don't dictate what's true. You determine what's true. So you tell me what to do. They never did that. So they go to war. They destroy a tribe of Israel. And now they're trying to figure out, now what do we do now? Now we're in a worse situation than we were before. One tribe of Israel is about to go out. So they come up with a solution. First thing they do is they commit genocide. They go to a town. They kill every man, woman, and child in the town. That's Judges chapter 21, verses 10 through 12. They kill everyone. The only people they let remain are the virgins from the town. There's 400 of them they find. People of God committing genocide. Man, woman, and child. We go from rape to genocide. Wives. <laughs> they only find 400 virgins in the town. And there's more Benjamites that need wives. <laughs> so they get another plan. They say, okay, you know what? Uh, we didn't get enough wives for these remaining Benjamites. We still need to find a few more. I know what to do. Sin always leads to more sin. Sinful thoughts lead to more sinful thoughts. Here's what we'll do. There's a celebration happening in Shiloh. That was actually kind of the capital of Israel at the time. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was being kept. It was where all the priests were supposed to be doing their sacrifices there's a celebration happening there. Everyone's going to be so happy, and all the families will be out. Perfect moment. Here's what we'll do. Chapter, 20, verse, chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. Reads this. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, that's the remaining few hundred men who didn't have wives yet, saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards. And watch. The daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, and come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Now, to give us the modern terminology for that, that's called human trafficking. When you kidnap a person, you run away with them for your own sexual appetite. That's called human trafficking. Here, we have the people of God falling, not just into rape, not just into genocide, but into human trafficking as well. Today, the United Nations estimates the total market value of illicit human trafficking to be at 32 billion U.S. dollars, which ranks it as the world's third most profitable crime after illicit drugs and arms trafficking. I could give you statistics all day long on how bad it is in our own city, but you should know Chicago is a central hub in the international human trafficking trade. Across our city, this is occurring. I lived in Thailand for over a year of my life. And in Thailand, the city of Bangkok, that is literally the international hub. I've watched this with my own eyes as people have been trafficked, including children, sold to the highest bidder for whatever they want to do for as long as they need it. Judges is not then. Judges is now. The story of Judges doesn't end well. It ends here. It's as dark as it gets. It's the black backdrop by which we need to evaluate our life and our society and by which we need to evaluate the behavior of the church. 
Judges is not their story, it's our story. And the author gives us a framework to begin processing a solution. He frames all three chapters in that one verse. What was it? In that day, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How did they get there? There was no king in Israel. The people of God allowed this to be them. It was because there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I want to evaluate that for just a little bit. I want to understand that way of thinking, and I want to equip you as a people of God to navigate that conversation. Today, if you were to go out on the streets and you were to poll people, what they would say when they are questioned about morality, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, is something like this. Everyone is free to do what is right or what is wrong in their own eyes. That's the cultural motto of the day. It's everywhere. It's rampant. Every article you read, every, everything you see, it's all being framed around this way of thinking. In fact, it has become evil for anyone to say that there is a higher morality. Now, let me give us some language and context to work through this. The reason we read Judges and we see our society in the midst of it is because it is, and we think this way. Christians have this unique way of thinking. Christians believe in what is called objective morality. Objective morality says that there is truth. That truth comes from God. Morality has been dictated and communicated with clarity from the God of the universe who knows you, loves you, and has set you apart. Your life has meaning, it has a purpose, it has a mission, and what you are to be doing is what God says is good and he has communicated that to you. And any deviation from God's beautiful, holy, perfect law is immoral, is wicked. That is objective morality. And the thing about it is, is that morality is not this higher law, as if it's a God that God submits to, as if there's this kind of universal, objective law that floats over the cosmos, that God then says, yeah, that, that morality, I submit to that. No, rather, God is the highest universal supreme being, and all morality flows out of who he is as a God. So if something is good and it is moral, it is because it's a quality of God. If something is bad and it is wicked, it is because it's a quality that is not of God. Morality comes from God and it is objective. Subjective morality is the opposite of that. Subjective morality says there is no higher truth. There is no universal law that dictates what is right or wrong and it is up to each person to decide what is right or what is wrong in their own eyes. Another terminology for that is moral relativism. Morality is relative based on what you want it to be. Now, in our country, 55% of people would say that morality is relative. That's within the church and out of the church as well. 55% of people would say that morality is relative. What I want to do is I want to show you three reasons why I believe that not only leads, and I want to equip you with this terminology, subjective morality not only leads to the book of Judges of what we saw, but it leads to the corruption in our world today, and it is a flawed philosophy of life. God has called us to so much more, but I need you to understand how to communicate this to the people around you. Subjective morality is wrong. Here's three reasons. Number one is the problem of evil. One reason subjective morality cannot stand as a philosophy of life is the problem of evil. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist, he once had a quote that has made atheists angry over the years. He said, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. 
And his point is this. He says, look, if you remove God from the equation, if you remove the universal lawgiver, then everyone is free to do exactly as they please. And no one can ever say to another person what you are doing is bad behavior or is wrong behavior. <coughs> because your judgment is not rooted in anything. You're just as right to say that what is right and wrong as they are. The problem is the problem of evil. Just about everybody would agree that rape is bad. Just about everyone agrees that genocide is bad. Just about everyone agrees that human trafficking is bad. But the problem is, is that if we have removed God from the equation, we have no right to say that anything is wrong or right. Because if someone else thinks that rape is good, then we have to give it to them. If our philosophy of life is that everyone does what's right in their own eyes, if there's someone saying that that thing is right, who am I to say they're wrong? The problem of evil pokes a big hole in the philosophy of moral relativism. Number two is the problem of pain. The problem of pain. Most of the time, if you get into a conversation around this, what will happen in the conversation is the very next move the moral relativist will make is they will say, let me correct my stance. What I meant to say was, everyone is free to do exactly as they please so long as it doesn't cause harm to anybody else. Now, that sounds a little bit better. It sounds like, okay, I think that gives me room to think about other people rightly. Two reasons that doesn't work. Number one, they've already conceded the ground that no one can tell anyone else what is right or wrong. And so for them to say that harm is wrong, they've already given that ground up. That what are they appealing to? If they say there's no God, there's no objective morality, you, you can't then say harm is a wrong thing. But let's just give it to them. Let's just say for a moment harm is wrong and there's some magical universal law that says that harm is a wrong thing. The question then becomes, what determines what is harm and what is pain? Most people would say what they're referring to is physical, immediate, short-term pain. But that's so short-term thinking. When we look at Scripture, most of the harm is long-term harm that we see. When people drift aside from morality and it's generations of brokenness and, and curses upon people. It's generations of sin. So, for example, we look at the problem of pornography. You say to the moral relativist, is pornography wrong? They say, no, that doesn't harm anybody. They're, it's what they do in private. It's, it's totally up to them. If they think that's right in their own eyes, then it's right in their own eyes. Well, here's the problem. You see, what defines what is harm? Because someone who looks at pornography is creating demand for pornography, which encourages the human trafficking that takes place around the globe that feeds the majority of the pornography that's available to us. And so by consuming it, we are furthering something that you've already said is wrong, human trafficking. I know it doesn't cause short-term pain, but what is harm? Or how about a father abandoning his child? Is that wrong? That causes no short-term pain. There's nothing that actually is hurting someone right now, but everyone would look at a, a child whose father has abandoned him and left him into the wilderness of life with no adult male in their life to kind of tell them where to go and guide them a little bit and say, we see what's wrong with this when a father abandons his child. How do you determine what is wrong? The problem of pain. The moral relativist has no solution to this. And the third one is the problem of love. The problem of love. You know, it's a true statement that's been kind of put to the test a lot of times that just about everybody will jump into a pool or body of water to save a drowning person. Even if it's your enemy. Across humanity, if someone's drowning, people will jump in to help. Why is that? What is inside of humanity that cares for people that are suffering? 
The great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he, he had this idea of life. He said, God is dead. There's no more God. Therefore, we're all free to do whatever we want to do. And that's essentially what the book of Judges says. And, but Nietzsche had this big claim. He said, look, if evolution is true, right, if we're all just here and we're in an evolved state of being, well, what that means is that what should be true to our identity is that it's survival of the fittest. Let the weak die off. Let the needy go away. The problem is, is that so many people actually look at life and they see the poor and the needy, and most people, especially in America, would say we should be doing something about the poor and needy. We should be caring about social justice. We should be helping those who are in need. And Nietzsche would say, if you believe there is no God and you are a moral relativist, but you still want to care for the needy, you still care about social injustices, and you still want to provide for the poor among you, he would say, you're still a Christian, you, just don't, you don't even know it. You're living by a theocentric, Christocentric worldview, but you're pretending like God doesn't exist. In a world where God doesn't exist, we should not be caring for the poor and needy. Yet love permeates us. Yet there is something in the human instinct that is made in the image of God because God has been stamped into our wiring that says we want to love someone somewhere in the depths of our core and you can't remove it. The moral relativist cannot figure out the problem of love. Now, what are we to do with this? Here, here we have a failed philosophy. Moral relativism doesn't work. We must have a higher law that we live into. And within the book of Judges, all we see is darkness. What then is the solution? Within the book of Judges, there is no solution. But if you turn the page, just one page over, one page over to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth begins this way. In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the day when the judges ruled, the story of Ruth comes into play. In all the darkness, when no one could see it, God had a glimmer of light, just a glimmer of light that he was preparing to be the solution to the problem of the darkness. In the midst of the season of Judges, the story of Ruth, this amazing, beautiful marriage that comes to bear of a woman who's stuck by a woman who is suffering and then comes into this beautiful marriage, and as you trace Ruth's story through to the New Testament, what we find is that through the lineage of Ruth, through this woman who gets wrapped up in the season of Judges into marriage, we find the birth of Jesus Christ comes through her childbearing. Through her great, 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 great grandson, we get to Jesus Christ. God was forming light even in the midst of the darkness when people couldn't see it. John chapter 1 verse 5 reads that in the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. In the midst of our brokenness, the one who gives all morality and all life and all love enters into it and he shines like a supernova in the midst of the darkness around us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, steps into the darkness and displays all of God's morality and perfect love because he was light himself. In the midst of the darkness, God descended into humanity's darkness and shined a life for us to see. And the greatest display of self-sacrifice, the greatest display of love the world has ever known is when one man took on our sin on the cross. 
When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the greatest, darkest moment in humanity was not Judges 19 to 21. It was the end of the Gospels when Jesus hung on the cross. Literally, it says the sky turned black as all the weight of the sin, all the darkness that we bring into the problems of the world hung on the shoulders of one man. Light himself bore our darkness and then rose from the grave, bursting forth light back into the atmosphere. Darkness won for a moment, but then light triumphed. And at the resurrection of Jesus, heaven invaded earth. Light, the true light that was from the beginning, God who gives all light, who gives all morality, penetrated the darkness, fills the church, and now equips you to live a self-sacrificial life that Jesus once designed, that Jesus once lived before us. As a church, we need to wrestle through the reality that we have failed many times in the past. But the fact that we have failed means that we need to constantly be looking backwards to the truth that Christ has risen from the grave and we are a constantly reforming people, looking at where we have let ourselves down and clinging to the promises of a God who says, I will still form you, I will still use you, your mission still exists. We can continue to live in la-la land, We can continue to live as if these things are not happening around us and as if darkness has not settled in. We can continue to live as if God has not set the church apart, has not set you apart to be the light that goes into the darkness, fueled by light himself. But to do that would to miss out on everything Christ has invited you to participate in. You are an ambassador of Christ if your faith is in Jesus. You are the light of the world if your faith is in Jesus. You step into the darkness if your faith is in Jesus. Christ gets all the glory. And people see Jesus in the midst of your life. Let me pray for us. Father, we are a bit overwhelmed at the darkness of this text. But in the midst of it, we point ourselves towards Christ and we're reminded that you are light, you are good, you are love, and you have not forgotten your people. In the midst of darkness, we cling on to you. In the midst of our addition to darkness, that we are the most sinful among us, that it's not someone else's sin, but it's ours that contributes. God, we know that you pour light into our heart and you rejuvenate our souls. So God, make us a church that's filled by the Holy Spirit and that has a different voice, a voice of light and of strength, the power of the resurrection. Forgive us where we have been blind. And then activate us to be a church on fire for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.